0: It's Wednesday, Secret Squad, and you know what that means, a new episode of I've Got a Secret. I'm Robin McGraw, and you are all going to be riveted by today's guest. Jeff Deskovic is an attorney and internationally recognized wrongful conviction expert. Why is he an expert, you ask? Well, at the age of 17, Jeffrey was convicted of a murder he did not commit. He spent 16 years in prison before being exonerated by DNA evidence. Jeff has now dedicated his life to preventing wrongful conviction, founding the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, and serving on the Global Advisory Council of Restorative Justice International. His story is truly remarkable, and I can't wait for us to dive into all of the details. This is The Secret to Fighting for the Truth. Thank you for dialing in with me today, Jeff.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, my gosh. You have no idea how excited I have been that we were going to get together today and virtually, of course. I'm so sorry that we're going through this. Of course, we all are this pandemic and that we can't be together in person. But I thank you so much for, again, for dialing in and doing this together virtually.
1: Absolutely.
0: So let me ask you first, do you like to go by Jeffrey or Jeff?
1: I I prefer to go by Jeff. It's a little bit more friendly
0: and less formal. Okay, wonderful. Wonderful. So it'll be Jeff from now on. (laughs) So Jeff, I'd like to start from the very beginning, and I'd love for you to tell us about your life before you were wrongfully accused.
1: Yes. So I grew up in the city of Peekskill, which was Westchester County, New York. It was the suburbs. It was about, it was a middle-class neighborhood. It was ethnically diverse, and we were middle class. I'd say we were mid-rung of middle class. Uh, It was an apartment complex. There were a lot of kids that lived in that apartment complex, and there were lots of kids that lived in the surrounding neighborhoods that used to come over there. We had a playground. We had a tennis court. There was a swimming pool, you know, and I was growing up, I was kind of one of the two main kids that was the life of the party, so whatever I would suggest would be what we would do. If we're going to play Monopoly, we're going to go on a bike ride, we're going to go play basketball or any number of other games that, that kids do. But that was my life out of school. But in school, and the, the public high school, which I wanted to go to, was literally across the street from, from my house. And but, but in school, though, because I had actually skipped a grade, I skipped uh, first grade. So the kids, that caught up to me in my first year of high school because the kids were a little bit older than me. So you know they were into drinking beer and going to parties and dating and I really playing organized sports and I really was not so i didn't fit in there um be, you know because of those things so i was kind of like really um uncomfortable and tight and withdrawn and i didn't quite fit in
0: so what were your aspirations as a teenager because for those who don't know you were wrongfully accused when you were 17, as I said in the beginning. So before that, what were your aspirations when you were a teenager?
1: Yeah. So when I was a teenager, the career I wanted to have when I grew up was to be an attorney. My mother had a personal injury attorney, and I remember seeing him a couple of times with the suit in a Tachi case, and he seemed to be well-respected and, um, you know, well-compensated, you know. Um, and, And then I would wind up being, you know, arrested when I was 16. I would turn 17 by the time I you know, lost the trial and was in prison. But that was the career I wanted to have when I was a teenager. Before I was a teenager, though, and this will come into play in the story in in a few minutes. uh, Before I was a teen, the career that I wanted to have when I grew up was actually to be a cop. Really?
0: Oh, wow. When did you find out that your classmate, Angela, had been raped and murdered?
1: Like approximately three days afterwards by the newspaper. I mean, I remember hearing the announcement over the PA system that she was missing, you know, in in the, you know, PA system in the high school. And if anyone here know anything, you know, um, and I remember reading in the newspaper that she was missing. And then uh, a couple of days later in the newspaper, you know, the article was a teen body found and yeah. And it was an announcement made over again, over the Peekskill high school. Uh,
0: So you were classmates, but you weren't really close friends, correct?
1: Correct. Yeah, she was in two of my classes as a freshman, one as a sophomore. I knew her name, she knew mine. That was the extent of it. We're not even really on a high-five basis. Uh-huh.
0: And you heard over the PA system that she was missing, and then three days later, you read in the newspaper that she had been found and had been raped and murdered. Right. And how did you feel when you heard that? Just, of course, like anyone I would was feel. I was kind of shocked.
1: It was, really my, it was really my first brush with death, uh, I was a sentimental kid. I mean, I did have an emotional reaction to it. And, um, you know, the police interviewed a lot of students from the high school, and some of them told the police that they might want to speak to me because I didn't quite fit in. So that was how I originally got on the police radar. (gasps) Really? So I guess like the underlying theory is people that don't fit in commit heinous crimes, right? Oh, my
0: gosh. That's how you even got on their radar was from your yes. fellow classmates just saying, you know, he's just an odd kid. He just stands out. You might want to talk to him.
1: Right. But
0: lesson learned, right there. Isn't that a shame?
1: So my emotional reaction, though, the police also looked at that as being suspicious. Well, why are you like in a, emotionally wrought over this person that you, you know, barely knew? And so they thought that that was, uh, they thought that was odd. They thought that was suspicious. You know, and a a last thing was that the uh, Peekskill police they had got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which purported to have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator, and it turned out that I matched that profile. So that was a type of reinforcing (gasps) fact.
0: That is very scary. You're completely innocent and just labeled odd by your fellow peers. And so therefore you're marked as a suspect. Now, is it true that you went to her wake? Yes. And so why did you do that? Just because you have compassion?
1: Because because I had compassion and everybody did that. I mean, I went multiple times, but then again, so did everybody else. Some people went to four sessions. You know, I went to three, but it was, I mean, this shook up the whole community of peaks. It hadn't been a murderer in a really long time. I mean, uh, the, the, the city almost shut down. I mean, parents were bringing their kids to the high school, picking them up, bringing them straight home. Uh, you know, there were town hall meetings made, you know, to give updates on investigation, give safety tips. and, and even, even to the point that free mental health counseling was available to anybody who, who wanted it.
0: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. A very natural thing. That doesn't sound odd that you would go to her wake even three times just as everyone else was. So, uh, so now they, the police come and get you, they pick you up, and they take you in for questioning, correct? Correct. Oh, so as a young boy, did that just scare you to death?
1: Not fully, because the way that they got me to agree to go to the, to the police station was that um, they said that they wanted my help to solve the crime. And I said, I don't see how I can be helpful. They wanted me to be helpful. Right. And then I don't see how I could be helpful. I don't know anything about it. And, you know, and then and, and, and then that was a theme for the next six weeks that, you know, um, characterized all of my interactions with the police. Half the time they talked to me as a suspect and that would scare me. But then when they would push too hard and I would become really frightened and want to just get the heck out of there. Then Jeff is this junior detective helper theme was introduced by, you know, the officer who was playing the good cop.
0: Oh, my God. Heavens. Did you kind of this is I'm just curious, did you kind of relate it to uh TV shows you had seen and and movies? Yes, I did.
1: No, I I did. I, I certainly did. And they helped that along. You know, they would say, Look, the kids won't talk freely around us, they will around you. Let us know if you hear anything. Uh stop in from time to time, and any new theories. They they would ask me opinion questions and congratulate me that my opinion was correct. And again, I wanted to be a cop pre teenage years. So this was like a unexpected early opportunity to do this police work. And so that fact, along with my being 16, was how they were able to pull the wool over my eyes.
0: Oh, wow. So so you said this went on for about six weeks. So it wasn't just a one time questioning. They they kind of played you for over six weeks. Yes. And now let me ask you this. The first time they questioned you, was it at the police station? Yes. Where were you when they took you down there?
1: I was on my way to school. So just the position of the apartment building in the high school, there would only have been two ways to go to the high school and they picked the obvious. I would have had to really go out of my way on an extreme level to go the other way. So they knew exactly where to stay and wait for me, just from a logical point of view. And you were, so you were alone? You didn't have alone. your parents. I did not.
0: Did they ever give you the opportunity to call your parents?
1: Well, my mother knew that I had one interaction with them and she didn't want me to have anything further to do with them. And, you know, and they, and they knew that, you know, and I, and I knew that, but, you know, um, but from there, they lot. they called one of my best friends to have him call me to then re-engage with them. And then thereafter... My, you know, they hid from my mother that I was interacting with them, and I did also because, I mean, I, I didn't. I mean, was raised to respect the cops, believe the cops. They're there to help us. Look, I didn't do anything. I don't see how I could possibly, you know, anything bad could actually happen. In fact, they're asking me to help them.
0: Yes, they're manipulating you. They're
1: manipulating me. And There was one other manipulation that I want to uh, reference also, which is, um, you know, and they're playing the good cop, bad cop tactic. You know, I began to look up to the officer who was pretending to be my friend as like a father figure. I mean, my father was never involved in my life in any aspect. I never actually met him. And so him pretending to be my friend, you know, was another psychological factor in all of this. Oh, my
0: heavens. So was there a point in that six weeks when you saw that even the good cop was not your friend?
1: It wasn't until after I was arrested. (gasps) Oh, my. The six-week period where they were, you know, manipulating me, it came to an end by by them telling me, uh, look, we got some new information in the file, and we want to share that with you, but you have to pass this polygraph test first. <gasps> and plus, if you do, and you'll be more helpful. Plus, if you do that, you know, that part of the conversation where we start talking to you, know, we're talking to you like a suspect, you know, we can, we can drop that aspect of it and really focus in on, solving the crime. And so the next day, rather than go to the high school, I instead went to the police station where I thought this polygraph test was going to take place at.
0: Oh, no. And, and did you take a polygraph test?
1: I did, but it wasn't at the police station. They drove me by car across county lines, uh, 40 minutes to deliver me into the hands of this polygraphist who was a Putnam County Sheriff's investigator, but he was dressed as a civilian he never identified himself to me as a as a cop and as he testified he carried out this procedure which he called uh, GTC uh, get the confession and I just want to tell the listeners right
0: now to just pay such close attention because all of these facts play such importance in your story and especially in the trial so they take you illegally to this place for a polygraph test and you take the polygraph what was that experience like for you as a 16 year old child
1: okay, i was totally in over my head i mean first of all they gave me a four-page brochure which explained how the polygraph worked but it had a lot of big words in it which i didn't understand but then i pushed past my own concern by thinking well i'm here to help the police so what does it matter let's just get on with it
0: Oh my! Uh, gosh. From,
1: from there they put me in a small room and they gave me a uh, an uncountable number of cups of coffee in order to, you know, which is clear, they did, did that in order to get me nervous. And, and they attached me to the polygraph machine. And then he launched into his third degree tactics, mm-hmm. It was very small room. And, you know, he invaded my personal space and, you know, he raised his voice at me and, and he kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And, you know, as each hour is going by, my fear is increasing more and more. I'm not used to talking to adult males, much less, the way that he's carrying on. And he seems to be getting more and more ferocious as, as each hour goes by. And he kept that up for about six and a half to seven hours.
0: <gasps> no, six and a half to seven hours for a polygraph test.
1: Yes. Well, in rea- yeah, yeah. The short answer is yes. But the elaboration I want to make is this was really an interrogation that was masquerading as a polygraph. Right.
0: They wanted you to think a polygraph test would take six and a half to seven hours with that many different questions. You there by yourself, this may sound like a silly question, but I have to ask it right now. Had you ever had coffee before? Were you a coffee drinker?
1: I was not a coffee drinker. I I think, what, what, once every three months, if I was with an aunt and uncle, I might have a cup of coffee. And Besides that, no.
0: Well, because I asked that because a 16-year-old drinking coffee, I... Never had coffee when I was 16 years old. I didn't drink coffee until I was probably 36 years old. And to give a 16-year-old young man a lot of coffee, that would make you very nervous, very hyper. It's just a horrible thing to do. And then to have you sit there and be interrogated, I just think that's just horrible. So what did they tell you at the end of that seven hours?
1: The polygrapher, I guess, he had just kind of like had it with me by that point of my protesting my innocence and he says what do you mean you didn't do it you just told me through the test result that you did we just want you to verbally confirm it to us and that's when the cop who had been pretending to be my friend he came in the room the other one went out of the room and he said uh, he's, and he and he said to me look these these other officers they're, they're going to harm you you know i've been holding them off i can't do so any longer look you got to help yourself here just tell them what they want to hear They'll stop what they're doing. You can go home afterwards. You're not going to be arrested.
0: <gasps> Those are the so, key words. You can go home and you're not going to be arrested if you just tell them what they want to hear. That's what he yes. said to you.
1: That's what he said to me. And so, uh, you know, being young, naive, bright, 16, uh, overwhelmed emotionally and psychologically, I was in fear of my life. The fact that I didn't know where I was and no one else did either, it was pretty large in my mind. You know, and then he introduced this possibility of harm. He's thrown me this false life preserver. So I made up a story based upon the information which they had given me in the course of the interrogation that day and in the six weeks run up to it. By the time it was all said and done, um, I, I, I collapsed onto the floor in, in a fetal position and I, I was crying uncontrollably. <gasps> I, obviously, I was arrested
0: what most people would say is you confess, but what you actually, I want to say is you told the story. You had been primed to tell over six weeks and in seven hours you collapsed yes. and you told the story, correct? Yeah,
1: you, you correct. You, you've got it exactly right.
0: Oh my heavens. So he comes in and he says, tell them what they want to hear and you can go home. You won't be arrested. It'll all be over. You can go home. And at that point, Psychologically, you were beaten down until you just told the story. You repeated the script. Yes. Oh, oh my gosh. So it, it, when someone says, well, why would you confess to a crime you did not commit? That's it right there. You just explained it.
1: Yeah, <gasps> you're right.
0: I'm so sorry.
1: The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt
0: Street. Essential Television. So the experience of that psychological trauma around making this false confession, how have you dealt with it?
1: Well, for a long time, I was uncomfortable with that, you know, because, um, I mean, as we're going to tell later on, I do a lot of advocacy work. I do a lot of interviews. I speak a lot. I meet with elected officials. I have a lot of informal conversations. I'm always talking about it, okay? because it's part of my work of raising awareness, trying to connect that with policy changes. So I do it a lot. But for a long time, I really wasn't comfortable. I mean, at times, you know, I, I I felt stupid. You know, look, you know what? This is stupid what you're doing. You know, this was the stupidest thing in the world ever that you did. And then it wound up costing you 16 years. You know, you should stop this. You should stop talking about it. You should just crawl under a rock someplace and just, like, never be heard from again. Oh. So for a long time, I, I you know that thought would come into my mind every now and then it would make me uncomfortable. And I would feel, you know, psychologically, I might, I might be in better shape if somebody had claimed that, you know, they misidentified me or some informant made up a false story and implicated. It would have been better for me a little bit if it all could have come from someone else's mouth rather than my own. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm in a much better place now. I feel comfortable with everything now, because I mean, you know, those are all emotional things, but I know from a logical point of view, you know, I was 16, they overreached me. It's a miracle. It took seven hours, uh, you know, for them, for them to do that. And, and, you know, and and I know of course that, you know, coerced false confessions have caused wrongful conviction in 25% of the DNA exonerations and that kids are really vulnerable to to false confessions. And, you know, so are people with, you know, mental health issues. I mean, it's, they do this to adults. So that's all kind of helped me in, in, in that.
0: And, and, and they can do that. They get away with that. That's allowed.
1: Police can do that.
0: They can tell you anything they want to tell you. They can lie. They can do anything. They can do that. Uh, Okay. So I want to go back so that we can do this in order because your story is so compelling and so fascinating, but also just heartbreaking at the same time from the beginning. So let's go back to they've beaten you down and you've confessed to the crime. So now you're arrested, correct?
1: Yes, I know that now, but they hid that from me in the moment. So the cop was pretending to be my friend. You know, he starts petting me on my on my head and trying to calm me down, and then this, uh, you know, then the a different cop was dispatched to go and and give me something to eat because I I hadn't had anything to eat all day. And um, then they put the, you know, then they transport me back to Peekskill, but you know, they want to put these handcuffs on me. And I, and, and I, and, you know, and I said, well, why are you putting handcuffs on me? You told me you weren't going to arrest me. And the Lieutenant says, Oh, safety. Oh, just safety. So they drove me back to headquarters. It still hasn't dawned on me that I've been arrested, even though I'm in, handcuffs. And we're at the police station and they're giving me pizza to eat. And as I'm eating a couple of slices, I'm interrupted periodically by different officers carrying out various aspects of processing. And so eventually we got time to do the fingerprints and they rolled my fingers in the ink and everything. And, you know, that really got me angry. And so I looked around for anybody that, that I recognized and I saw the cop would had been, you know, the, the, the bad cop. And, you know, and I kind of yelled, you know, you know, what's he doing, man? I'm, you know, he's got my my hands are full of ink. You know, I'm trying to eat pizza over here. And he says, well, he has the right to do that. And so I said, what do you mean he has the right to do that? You know, I was told I wasn't going to be arrested. And, and he says, oh, you're, you are being charged with the crime. And it was at that moment that I realized what happened. And then I asked to see, you know, the good cop. And, uh, you know, he, but th- he was nowhere to be found.
0: Oh, oh, he was That's at home. He was at home with was... his family having dinner. He was just, he's right. over. He's off work. Right. Your history to him. It was just all part of the job. So you were arrested, fingerprinted. And, yeah, and
1: they, then he asked me if I wanted to call my mother. And of course, my answer was no, because she never wanted me to talk to them in the first place. And, you know, but of course, at 16, most of us think that we know. We know better than our parents or you know the adults are stupid we know better and the last thing in the world I wanted you know was for them to call her and tell her about this
0: because then you you'd know, get in trouble
1: yeah right yeah yeah <laughs> so she, yeah 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 so eventually they I saw her and then they wound up transporting me to the county jail
0: so the next step I guess all this whole time you know you didn't do it and uh, yeah. but you have to get an attorney. To get mm-hmm. ready for yeah. trial. And so does the state appoint you an attorney? They do. And I understand that he was just horrible.
1: Yeah, yeah, he was horrible. So specifically, you know, he he rarely met with me. You know, whenever I would, whenever he met with me, I tried to explain that I was innocent and what happened in the interrogation room, but he, he always was shutting me up. He, he told me at one time that he didn't care if I was guilty or innocent. Oh, no. He, oh, no. he did not... He did not interview or call as a witness my alibi. I, I had actually been playing wiffle ball when the, when the crime happened. Um, he did, he, he did the, the results of a DNA test came in from the FBI lab before the trial. And, you know, he was supposed to use that to he was supposed to educate the jury on what the DNA evidence meant and use that to challenge the confession, except that he didn't.
0: He did. Oh, so uh, there was DNA found at the scene on, yes. at the crime on the victim. Yes. And of course it was not yours. Right. And he did not use that evidence in your trial. Right.
1: Right. I mean, the evidence was introduced at the trial by the prosecutor. So he did like a slick trick. He called, he called the DNA expert during the prosecution's case. He did that on the front end of it. So as to then call all the rest of his witnesses, the officers to try to like to try to minimize it, you know, so that by the time at the end, that's not the last thing that they would have heard. And so he, the prosecutor did that tactic. Um, but my lawyer also didn't fully make use of that, the, the DNA, uh, in order to explain away the, uh, DNA, the prosecutor got the medical examiner to commit fraud and, and commit <gasps> perjury. No, but When there's an autopsy, they're supposed to do written and audio notes as they make their findings. And so, six months after doing the autopsy, once this DNA comes back and doesn't match me, the medical examiner suddenly claims, you know, and this is hundreds of autopsies later, right? He suddenly claims that he remembers that he forgot to document uh, evidence, which he claimed showed that the victim was promiscuous. And that allowed the prosecutor to argue that the the, the the fact that the seminal fluid didn't match me that didn't mean i was innocent there must have been yet another person that she slept with before i murdered and raped her <gasps> so he wrongfully convict me he was willing to trash her reputation i mean this was a this was a 15 year old immigrant from Colombia who lived was in the country for about a year and a half she lived a very sheltered life she never went anywhere unless her older sister or parents were with her, and and they were willing to say that in order to get a wrongful conviction. And one of the things that allowed them to do that was that her family was not coming to court. So they had no idea what was being said about her in the courtroom. After taking his lie a step further, the prosecutor named another youth by name that he claimed had slept with the victim, but he never set the proper foundation for that. He never asked this other youth to give a DNA sample. He never called him as a witness. He simply made the unsupported argument to the jury. But my lawyer allowed that to happen. As a matter of fact, my lawyer should have never represented me because this other youth that the prosecutor was falsely saying must have slept with the victim. He was, uh, one of his colleagues elsewhere, another public defender in that same office was representing him while also supervising him on my case. This is just horrible. I know it gets a little bit worse. Uh, Let me, let me Uh fill in a few more details. Um, So, um, but then the the last thing, well, not the last thing. One of the next points I want to make is that um, my interrogation was not videotaped. It was no audio tape. There's no signed confession. It's just the cop's word for it. And when they came to court, they left the threat and false promise out of their story, so the jury never heard that. And I wanted to testify as to that, except that my lawyer wouldn't allow me to. And he was like, "Look, just sit back, okay? You don't know better than adults, all right? You already thought you, you were you were uh, knew better than an adult. And, and look what it got you. It was, let me sit back and, and just sit back and let me do my job. So I didn't. I got talked out of testifying that way." Uh, But then another aspect of it was that um, I hadn't uh, we had briefly considered to have a bench trial, which is decided by a judge instead of a jury because of the presence of this confession. But my lawyer came to me one day and said, look, the judge spoke to me off the record. And he and he told me to pick a jury because he didn't want to find he doesn't want to find you not guilty. (gasps) Oh, so that was improper right there. That's my right to decide if I want a jury trial or a bench trial, you know, and, 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 and every and it suggests to me that he was feeling some public pressure because every time I made a court appearance, it was this big, major media moment with all this guilt, presumptive and prejudicial coverage happening. So not content with having coerced the confession out of me, the cops also falsely attributed a statement to me. Specifically, they said that they claimed that I told them that, that I didn't know if the perpetrator ejaculated or not. And that word was not in my vocabulary as a 16-year-old. And they, that statement did not appear in any of their written reports about the interrogation until after the DNA matched me. So it's clear that they fabricated that in order to help the prosecutor get around the DNA. So there's that. But another aspect to it is that when the DNA didn't match me, the cops went back out into the field and they interviewed about 17 witnesses who knew the victim in one capacity or another. All of those witnesses told the police that she didn't have a boyfriend. There was no consensual sex, but the cops did not document any of those witness interviews. And so the defense never learned of any of that. And one more thing, if all of that, if you think that was something, right? Try right. this on, okay? Uh, the victim's clothes were entered into evidence, including her bra. And the jury asked to see the bra, which was important because that was in one of my statements that they coerced. And was, that was in that, that what I, what story I made up. You know, I, I claimed that I ripped off her, her, her bra. And you know, some bras you can't rip off of a body. So when they asked to see that, you know, that was like a bright spot for the defense. So, But it was at that moment when they asked to see it that the judge uh, notified everybody. He said that the clothes had been left in the courtroom over the weekend and that apparently the custodians thought it was garbage. And so they threw it out. And, yeah, so he allowed a photograph, he replaced the actual bra, he refused to give me a mistrial, he refused to strike any statements pertaining to the bra. And instead he said, look, I'm gonna substitute this bra with a picture in which you can almost see the bra in, in in the picture. But when they had been out, the jury had been out deliberating for three days and just before they came back in with a verdict, they sent a note out to the judge asking, well, if we don't come up with a verdict, are we going to be sequestered over the Christmas holiday, you know, kept in a hotel and, you know, incommunicado from the rest of the world? And the judge told them yes.
0: Are we going to miss Christmas?
1: Yeah. Are going to miss yes. Christmas and Christmas dinner? Yes. And so the Are la- we going to miss impl-
0: Santa with our children?
1: I learned many years later that at that point that they sent a note out, it, it was 11 to 1 at that point towards finding me guilty. And there was one juror who was holding out and and he said, you know, they were pressuring me, you know, and and then when we sent out the note, you know, then they really amped the pressure up more and none of them wanted to be sequestered, you know, and I didn't either. So even so, you know, even though I thought even though I didn't think you, you you know, know, I was guilty, uh, he switched his vote just to get out of there and he voted guilty and that was that was that was the unanimous 12 person decision that, you know, found me guilty.
0: Oh, I just wonder what he thinks or she thinks today.
1: But you we, know. we have a slight glimpse of that because he contacted my civil rights lawyer, you know, and said, look, I'm, I'm happy that Jeff's out. I saw in the news he was exonerated. You know, that's great. You know, because I never thought he was guilty to begin with. And my lawyer asked him, well, why did you vote that way then? And that's when he gave that information, which I just I wanted to
0: Christmas you. dinner, oh my heavens, oh my heavens so really, your verdict was solely based on the confession that the police coerced out of you. no yes. evidence they had no, no. evidence, all That's of cor- it was was false evidence created. Yes. Oh, and your attorney did nothing. he right. you had an alibi, and he didn't call your witness. That could, That's right. could actually verify your alibi, didn't even call him?
1: No, n- not only did he not call him, but he never even spoke to him. He didn't even have an investigator even speak <gasps> to him.
0: And did the police know of this alibi the whole I, I, six weeks?
1: Well, I told, well, I had told them about it when I, I told them about it. And, you know, I don't, there's no record of them ever doing anything with it or that, you know, that it gave them pause at all to check it out or anything, or it certainly never caused them to stop, you know, stop the train. Oh, well,
0: uh, and let me ask you this in that six weeks. And during the trial, did the mainstream media play a role in your conviction? Do you believe?
1: A thousand percent, of course. Yeah, because it was a lot of pre this was a major case. and, And every time I went to court, this was some, uh, guilt presumptive oriented perspective it was all sensationalized and
0: yeah what else were they go- going to print except all of the lies that right. they were being fed
1: right and this is you know where my lawyer you know again made another failing I mean he totally allowed the prosecution and the police to control the narrative of what the what was being printed in a newspaper all he would ever say is no comment and meanwhile they were making plenty of comments and you know, it kind of set the, uh, it kind of set the environment under which this case was tried. And I believe it was a major factor.
0: Oh, bless your heart. How long did the trial last?
1: About two weeks.
0: (gasps) Oh my gosh. So, so it's right before Christmas, they come back with the verdict and you're found guilty of a crime you did not commit. Right. And what was the sentence given to you?
1: Yeah. Uh, so, uh, when I went to the sentencing hearing, I begged the judge to overturn the verdict. I referenced the DNA, and he said to me, right, fasten up the seatbelt here. He said to me on the record, he says, maybe you are innocent. But you would think that the next step that logically flows from that is you've got to stop this thing. You're the judge. You could overturn the conviction. You could reverse any number of rulings, including this evidence being thrown out that that, that you made against me. So he's admitting he knows
0: something. He's he's admitting in his heart he knows knows that 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 you were jerked around, completely
1: jerked around. Correct. But instead of doing that, he instead gave me a 15 to life sentence, which I was sent, you know, to, I was sentenced as an adult and I was sent to a men's maximum security prison.
0: Oh, 15 to
1: life. Yes.
0: Oh. And how did you feel in that moment when you heard your sentence?
1: I thought my life was over. I didn't know what to expect.
0: And and how many family members were in court with you when it was read?
1: Uh, three. Who were they? It was my, 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 my mother and um, two, two of my aunts.
0: <gasps> I'm just so sorry. I'm sorry for your mom. What did she say?
1: She didn't say anything. I mean, when you're in court and you're just there as an audience member, you know, you're not... You're not allowed to speak. Certainly, no one's going to ask you a question.
0: Were you allowed to hug her?
1: No, no. I mean, I had been on bail during the trial, but when they, I was found guilty, I was taken back into custody. Uh, you know, and so you know, I came into the court, you know, as a prisoner. But that was another thing. Just to just to give a further illustration of how bad the media coverage was, when I got bailed out, I mean, that was that was a big media thing too as a matter of fact the person who bailed me out who who was a uh, local businessman who owned a carpet store you know he got a lot of negative publicity and he lost business as a result of doing that
0: did you know him
1: yeah he was yeah he was my mother's boyfriend
0: oh wonderful how much was your bail
1: it was fifty thousand dollars
0: wow oh i'm so happy you were bailed out i'm so happy you got bail.
1: Yeah, definitely made it it did it did make a big difference in the time leading up to the trial.
0: Did he ever regret that he bailed you out?
1: No, 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 he didn't because he, he lived to see me exonerated.
0: Oh, that's so wonderful. And your mother
1: Yeah reconnect. Yes. And my mother did as well. Wonderful. Yes. Wonderful. Wonderful.
0: Oh and I'm sorry he lost business, but that that's how the world is, isn't it, sadly? Yes. Well, I'm going to stop for a second right here in Surprise Secret Squad. This is a two-part podcast. To hear about what happened to Jeff after his unfair sentence, tune back in on Friday. You are going to be floored at how this story ends. To be continued...